Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. Arvind, it is such a pleasure to have you today on the Investing in Integrity podcast. First of all, how are you? And tell our audience, where are you calling in from? Hi, Ross. I'm here in our offices in San Francisco. Good to be with you and thanks for having me. Arvind, thank you. I can only imagine how busy you are given your role at City, heading up City Ventures, especially amidst the backdrop of everything going on with Silicon Valley Bank, FRB, the macroeconomic environment. We have limited time and so much ground to cover. We love starting with the highlight reel of our guests' careers told in their own words. Can you tell us your story? Tell our audience a bit about your career and your highlight reel. Absolutely. I started my career as an engineer. I did a master's and a bachelor's in electrical engineering and sort of true to family tradition, went down the path of becoming an engineer. I started my career at Intel in the mid-90s. It was a great time to be there. We were launching the mobile Pentium 2. So I worked on those products that shipped $2 for revenue at that time, which was back then a lot of money. (laughs) And after business school, I was thinking about what kind of a career fits the path that I'd want to follow. And I ended up choosing venture capital. You know, I felt like It was a strategic role. It would be interesting from a technology standpoint. My technology career and my technology experience would be helpful in figuring out what's coming next. And so I ended up going to a firm called Menlo Ventures, a firm that's been around since 1976 on Sandal Road. It was a great sort of decade to be at Menlo, invested in a whole bunch of enterprise technology companies, as well as some semiconductor companies. We invested in Companies like Cavium that ended up becoming leaders in their space. They're a network processor company. I was an investor in companies like Intelligent Results, Casion Systems, and others where I led or sponsored 15 investments, was on the boards of most of these companies. After that time, I came to City Ventures. You know, City was looking to build out its strategic investing program. They were looking for people with experience. And to me, I was always interested in this intersection of financial services and technology. It's something that I had gotten exposed to as a part of my investments at Menlo. And so when I started to talk to City, I got really excited about what may come next in the world of financial services. The word fintech did not exist back then. And so that's when I jumped in and here I've been for the last 12 years. It's an incredible story. And I think we can all take notes on, I'm impressed on how succinctly you can convey such an illustrious career. Your educational and early career background was in engineering and technology, like you mentioned. You have a bachelor's and a master's in electrical engineering. You spent four years with Intel in the late 1990s, as you mentioned, designing these breakthrough technology innovations. How do you think those early experiences apply to your present work as a venture investor? And what advice might you have for students, early career professionals who are thinking about engineering and technology and then going into financial services later on? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. You know, I think there are so many things about my time at Intel as an engineer that translate into the work that I do today, but also translated into my career and venture as a whole. Intel at that time was the unquestioned leader in the world of microprocessors and, and silicon that supplied the PC industry and the server industry. 
And the operational aspects and the excellence that I saw there is quite unparalleled, both from a manufacturing standpoint, product launch standpoint. I got involved with a number of aspects of new product introduction. And what does it take to do that, especially in a hard industry like semiconductors? Those are some of the things that I learned that translate well into thinking a little bit about what does it take to make a company successful? What does it take to actually operate something at scale? And sort of those patterns that you see, you end up using even when you're evaluating companies at the very, very early stages. Secondly, as an engineer, you get a sense of how difficult things are. When an entrepreneur says, I'm trying to build this, it's helpful to have that understanding of that seems like a very tough product. And by the time you actually get it customer ready, it might take you 18 months, might take twice the amount of time that you're thinking it'll take. In terms of sizing projects, in terms of understanding the technical difficulties, I think it was very helpful. But it also gave me a set of contacts that I could rely on and go back to and get expert advice. I was focused on a small part of the chip design process, but many of my friends from the industry are software people people from other parts of the chip industry, people in other parts of the tech industry in general. And I think I rely on those kinds of folks to to also help us think through some of the technical aspects of at least early stage companies. And then finally, what I learned over time at Intel, it's really about leadership and it's about operational experience and some of those business lessons that I saw as a junior engineer that I can translate into sort of the context no matter whether it's at a portfolio company we're investors in or even in my own position at City Ventures. And so that ended up being very formative as far as my professional career is concerned. It makes so much sense. And it makes me wish that I had considered engineering a little bit more when I was younger. (laughs) One thing we ask all of our guests on this podcast, you know, at Scholars of Finance, we are all about purpose-driven, principled leadership in finance and investing. As both a people leader and an investment leader, what are some of the values, principles, or paradigms that have contributed to the incredible success and impact you've had in your career? I think it's difficult to distill that down into you know, a couple of different things. But if I were to do that and synthesize it, maybe just talk a little bit of how I tend to think about management, think about investments, and so on. The first thing that's important is just being a transparent leader, right? assuming positive intentions among everybody that you work with. I think operating transparently, you're hoping to have a great team, people that understand how things work, people that understand reality, people that are reasonable and good to work with. And when you're honest with folks like that, I think they appreciate it. Secondly, this aspect of ethics and integrity, in fact, going to the purpose of scholars of finance, it doesn't matter what kind of leadership position you have, you're constantly called upon to make calls on things where it's important that you have this aspect of ethics and what's right and doing right by the company, doing right by the entrepreneur, doing right by the people that you work for, et cetera. To sound cliche, I mean, it's kind of what you do when nobody's watching. And I think in every leader's career, they'll have many, many such opportunities throughout their career, but also many, sometimes multiple times a year life's too short to play games. You've got to be open and transparent, honest, and do the right thing, do the right by the company, do right by your investors, do right by whatever the context may be, and run the team that way, run the operation that way. Yeah, I remember the first time that you and I met, being so struck by 
your perspective on ethics and integrity, the importance of ethics and integrity. I mean, we just hit it off immediately, you know, as kindred spirits, of course, being the core of Scholars of Finance's mission, right? Instilling that in the next generation of leaders. And I've always been so impressed by your generosity. I think your ethics and integrity, whenever I meet with you for our regular advising meetings, I've always been struck by how honest you are. You're very direct. You're very honest. When, you know, you think it's going to be a tough economy, organization, we have to pivot, perhaps maybe consider a different strategy. Your integrity is always shown through, which I've really appreciated. Just to personally, I think, attest to that. Segwaying into another question, you personally were just ranked number nine on Global Corporate Venturing's Power List of 2022. First of all, congratulations. Thank you. Second of all, can you unpack what you attribute that success to? You know, I think we've been very fortunate to be a part of a uh, bank and a financial institution like City that supported what we've been doing, right? When we set this up several years ago and started to invest in companies that were strategic to City and to financial services, you know, it was unclear how the journey would unfold. And as it has unfolded, we've just been very lucky to have had tremendous support from City's management and the business partners that we work with. So that's been instrumental and key to our success as an organization. Secondly, we've sort of brought these principles of venture capital, but then modified that to fit sort of the goal here of identifying strategic trends and emerging capabilities and brought the two worlds together, right? The world of a large financial and how that operates and the strategic needs of that organization and how these different businesses tend to think about innovation and they tend to think about the strategic direction, bringing that world together with the world of not necessarily just venture capital, but the world of startups, right? And there is a big gap in how the two worlds operate. And so one of the things that I feel we thought about and did well, but also had the opportunity to design it inappropriately was to bridge those two worlds and bring them together. We used to joke, you know, as techno technology folks, you know, there's a sort of this impedance mismatch. There's a mismatch in speed and you need that gearing between the two worlds. And that's how we thought about the role that we play in thinking about and understanding quite deeply, what do startups look for from a partner like City or from an investor like City? And also understanding deeply what's important to our business. I think we're able to match and we're able to find those opportunities that fit both those needs. And when both needs are met, you end up doing right by the startups that we work with. We end up doing right by the businesses and by City. And it's sort of a win-win situation. And that's what we have tried to achieve. And that's how we've designed our entire program. And I think that that's been instrumental in sort of whatever success we've had so far. I appreciate you sharing and the thoughtfulness, the design process that you mentioned, which you go through, I think is really fascinating. It segues into a couple of questions I wanted to ask just about City Ventures itself as a firm within the firm, if you will. When many of our students or younger listeners who aren't in venture capital think of venture capital, they likely think of the Sequoias, the Andreessen's, the indexes of the world, the large brand name independent VC firms. City Ventures, of course, is younger, being founded in 2010, but is associated with a much older bank. Can you talk a bit about how and why large banks like City came onto the VC scene? And I'd also love to hear your perspective on some of the key similarities and differences between a traditional or independent VC firm and a CVC like City Ventures. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I've had the opportunity to see over the last 20 plus years is in fact, how corporate venture capital has evolved. When I came to City, 
we had the ability to design a program that worked well in that ecosystem. And I think what I've seen in the last 10 plus years since I came to City is essentially a maturity among large corporations that are serious about corporate venture in setting things up so that they're working in a way where incentives are aligned, where there are no cross purposes, where you're minimizing or mitigating the chances that a startup that you're an investor in and the corporation somehow get crosswise and you know incentives are no longer aligned because of different directions that the two companies are going or whatever the case may be. I think all of those things have actually progressed quite a bit in the last 10 plus years. So specific examples of things of those are things like asking for special terms in the investment, whether it's a right of first refusal or a right of first notification. Again, each corporation is different. And in fact, each investment is different. And so one aspect of this world is just that corporate venture has come a long way and many corporations have figured out, hey, what's the best way to work with the startup ecosystem? At the same time, the other thing that's happened, uh, Ross, is technology has become so important to so many industries. You know, we're in financial services. Obviously, technology plays a crucial role here. But you take manufacturing or supply chain or energy or any other industry, technology has become extremely important. And software and the ability to adopt to new technologies, et cetera, has become extremely important. So having a corporate VC arm like this that gives you sort of that look around the corner to identify sort of the trends that are coming that are potentially disruptive to your firm and to your industry. The other aspect of how is it different from some of the institutional venture firms like Sequoia or Andreessen or others that you mentioned. And I think the goal that we have around, you know, strategic rationale for these investments and the goal that they have around financial returns of these investments, in fact, tend to get quite aligned, right? So the aspect of finding great investments, knowing how to work with these portfolio companies, adding value to these portfolio companies as an investor, forget that you're a corporate, but how do you help make these companies successful, supporting them when they are going through certain changes and being sort of sounding boards for the CEOs. All of those things are things that we do at City Ventures and other, I know other corporates do as well, right? So that part is actually quite common. The part that was different, obviously, is the strategic rationale. And here, the approach we have taken, Ross, with respect to how we look at the world is things that are strategic to us will be strategic only if the companies succeed. And so our filter about how to look at these companies, is the team good? Is the technology strong? Is there a competitive mode? Things of that nature that we assess. Is it a large market opportunity? Things of that nature end up being important even for the strategic aspect of the investment and how we look at the rationale there and the ability for a company to be, in fact, strategic to us. We've tended to look at ourselves as, yes, we're a strategic. Yes, we want to drive that partnership and engagement between city and these startups. But we also want to be a value-added investor. We also want to make sure that they can rely on us to behave in a certain way as investors on the cap table and be supportive of their journey. And I think that that's been very helpful as well. That segues perfectly into the next question that I actually wanted to ask, which was how you support them in that journey. Like I think of myself as a founder CEO, you know, we grew 3X in 2022, despite the macroeconomic environment. We're always talking about how we utilize our capital, how we manage OpEx, where we invest in growth, when do we do that amidst the current environment. 
And going to folks like Scott Cooper, you know, who we've had on the podcast from Andreessen, yourself, a number of others, we've been so grateful for your advice on how to navigate different market environments, how to think about our strategy, how to think about growth and investment. For you, how do you at City Ventures, you know, we're not a portfolio company of yours, you know, well, like Quaxum, who's like, you know, who we love and adore, who we know is in your portfolio. Like, let's take someone like Wole at Mocafi, you know, how do you and how does City Ventures support Wole or someone else in your portfolio? How do you actually get hands-on and add that value for the founders and CEOs that you work with? I think there are sort of two or three different aspects to the answer there, Ross. One is people come and take capital from City because they're interested in a relationship with City, with City's business or City's function or IT or whatever the case may be. And I think in many cases, there's probably already a engagement underway with some part of city. In other cases, there's no engagement underway, but we can kickstart that and support them with that relationship with city. And so that's one aspect of it, right? Maybe city becomes a distribution partner, or maybe city becomes a customer, or we have some other partnership type of arrangement between the company and city. And that obviously helps the startup with their growth. That's one aspect of the value add. The second aspect of the value add is sort of what we think of as sort of the city plus, right? Like in over and above the city relationship, how are some of the other ways in which we can add value to portfolio companies? And one of those things that we've done is we've organized these summits and we organize these events where we enable startups to meet other potential customers or distribution partners or other people in the ecosystem that are valuable to them. We're able to, for example, connect them to and introduce them to people that they want to talk to regarding a customer relationship. City banks the who's who of the Fortune for Global 2000. And in many cases, we have those relationships and we're able to translate that to benefit. As a client of ours, they'll say, hey, City, you know, I was interested in, let's say, cybersecurity. And in fact, City Ventures was introduced me to a company that is very interesting in that space. So that ends up being a win-win and ends up being a value-add to a portfolio company above the city relationship. And finally, we end up getting the opportunity to promote them in different ways, whether it's through some marketing opportunities, conferences, places where a small company may not get the opportunity to be present, but where we can promote their products, their services, get their name out there. We try to add value in these ways. Now, you asked about traditional institutional venture firms, they play a very similar role as far as adding value to the company and helping the company grow, guiding them strategically. And in many cases, they do that as board members. In our case, we're not necessarily taking board seats in our companies. In fact, we've taken board seats in a minority of the situations. We're not sort of making the call on, hey, you should hire XYZ for your next VP of sales or whatever the case may be. We don't get involved at that level. But when we know a company is looking for a VP of sales, we help the company. It sounds very differentiated. And it sounds like you at City Ventures can add unique value. One of the other ways I'm sure you add value is through the advice you can offer based on your experience. That said, I'd love to shift into a couple of questions about the macroeconomic environment quickly. The current macro environment has marked the greatest period of uncertainty many investors have ever faced with eight plus percent inflation rates interest rates rising, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, a number of other banks in the ecosystem, 
and broad rhetoric that we're in or entering a recession. How have you been thinking about your role as a venture capitalist differently? And how has the work changed over the last six to 12 months? And how do you think it's going to change in the year ahead? Yeah, I think the tech downturn that we saw in 2022 and sort of the slowness that we're seeing even currently, I mean, this is maybe my third or fourth, depending on how you count, sort of downturn that I have experienced in venture. So the first thing is to sort of have the proper perspective on it, Ross. Many people who've been in the industry, even for 10 years, this is still their first downturn. I went through sort of the second half of that dot-com sort of bust, and then the experience through the, the financial crisis, and now this. I tell people that the level at which the industry is operating today, both in terms of the number of companies, the amount of capital, the number of venture capital firms that are out there, the amount of seed capital that's available, the number of companies that have 50 million or 100 million in revenue and above and are sort of marching towards an eventual IPO, the number of IPO-ready companies, companies that are ready for an IPO today, it's just incredible that it's maybe 10x of what it was back before the financial crisis, right? If you take a period like 2006, 2007, before the financial crisis, and it felt good, right? Like we were just coming out of the dot-com bust and everything. This period is just objectively a lot bigger and it's a lot more dynamic than that period. Why is that? I mean, some of those are like the tectonic shifts that have happened in technology, like cloud, like mobile. Those things have been driving sort of really deep change. And then there are the new shifts that are happening around AI and large language models and all of that. And so I think there's just so much activity going on right now. And so having that historical perspective, I think, is important, A. B, the advice that we are giving our companies, as well as others that we work with, you know, the syndicate partners, is just to be conservative on your growth prospects, right? Especially for a company that's beyond that Series C, Series D phase, you have a mature product. Let's mature the company's operations to the point where you put numbers out there that you can hit. And you have to be predictable about that beyond a certain stage of development. And so we're encouraging our companies to watch that burn, moderate their growth prospects for 2023, watch the space, right? I mean, things can change and things can start to accelerate. And at that point in time, if the company has adequate capital, they can certainly invest and accelerate that investment. But until then, just be very conservative when it comes to to cash, to scaling their go-to-market operations and things of that nature. So that's the advice we've been giving people. And then finally, it's a little bit of sort of a, a back to basics. I mean, we're looking for people who can operate through these periods and who can run efficiently and making sure that you have the right people on the team. It's giving many entrepreneurs, CEOs of startups, that opportunity to take a look at their operations, to look at their teams and make sure that they're right-sized and make sure that if the economy and the environment turns, they're able to then invest and grow, but until then, you know, just operate conservatively. Right, right. And I appreciate you giving me and scholars of finance that same advice even, right, as we've been navigating these uncertain times. And I appreciate you sharing the advice that you've been giving companies amidst this uncertain environment. Building on that, how do you think we can be the purpose-driven, principled, ethical leaders with integrity that we need to be amidst this time? We're going through sort of this down period, as we just talked about. And 
this is when certain excesses start to come out, right? This is when there are certain examples that you will see in the press where there were issues and they found some irregularities or whatever the case may be. For investors that have not been through previous downturns, what do you do in that case? What if there was a situation where somebody did something unethical in your startup? How do you treat that particular situation and so on and so forth? I think that acting with integrity and acting ethically is sort of table stakes. It's a must-have in any situation, and it's a must-have, especially in a situation like this. Purpose-driven is a little bit of a higher calling as far as whether the company itself has a certain purpose over and above the product and the market it operates in and so on and so forth. But as far as operating with integrity, operating with transparency with their team, many startups are having to deal with doing riffs, et cetera, and how do they treat that team? You know, how do they treat those kinds of hot, tough decisions? We're seeing that leadership metal among the management teams in our portfolio. It's a must-have. I think you're expected to act with integrity. If your growth is slowing because of the market environment, because of the overall slowdown in tech, and you promised your board some massive growth for the year, now there's a tough decision for you. Like, how are you going to present this to the board? And I would say it's 100% of the time, like face the music, be out there, be completely transparent, saying the environment shifted. This is all we could do. We need to take actions to reduce expenses conserve our cash, reduce our cash burn, and then we will you know, live for the next upturn so that when we get there, we have capital to invest and we have a great product that will thrive in that environment. So just completely be transparent and open with your board and investors. And we oftentimes have been hearing think long-term, right? If you're trying to build a you know, multi-billion dollar enterprise, or in our case, if you're trying to build a global institution, this is a 10, 20 year process except that it's probably not only okay, but wise to have a year where there's less growth to build a foundation, polish the machine and get ready for more growth when the market better supports that growth. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing. We're coming up on time here. I would love to move into our rapid fire round. I have just a couple rapid fire questions. I'm going to hit you with these and just hit me with top of your head. First thing that comes to mind. Does that sound good? That sounds great. All right. First, many of our student listeners and early career listeners aspire to careers in VC. So I have to ask, what are some of the qualities and skills or traits that you look for when you're hiring someone at City Ventures? Yeah, I think fundamentally, we look for people with curiosity. I mean, it goes without saying that you need smart people. You hopefully want people that have worked in this field that they're interested in, whether it's in technology or venture capital or finance or whatever the case may be. That goes without saying but I think we're fundamentally looking for people with curiosity and people with sort of a hunger to learn more, to know what's happening, you know, a hunger to work with great companies and be a part of great stories. Amazing. Second, now let's say you've hired this curious, hungry person who wants to learn, get involved in companies at City Ventures. What makes people rise the ranks and really stand out once they're in the firm? I think the cultural fit and how they work with others and how they operate in a team is probably among the top things that we look at. We're a large company. We operate in sort of a very networked environment, both internally and externally. So having that EQ, having the ability to work with others, having the ability to achieve things for the organization, for the company, as well as how they interact with startups, how they interact with other VCs on the board, that's so much more important than sort of the technical skills that you may have learned in engineering school, you know, 10 years ago, right? And so that EQ, that ability to work with people and work together as a team is extremely important for us. 
Fantastic. Thank you, Arvind. My last rapid fire question, bit of a layup for you. You've been so generous with the time that you've given to us at Scholars of Finance. You've spoken to our students at Stanford. You've been advising me personally as CEO and founder. You've been helping champion SOF within City. Now you're here on our podcast. What stood out to you about our organization and our mission? And why would you encourage others to support our work? This aspect of bringing ethics and integrity to finance, I mean, it's such a timeless mission, Ross, right? It's something that that was needed 300 years ago, it's needed today, and it will be needed 300 years from now. That's just the nature of this industry. The finance has always been a very interesting profession for a lot of folks, so we don't need any additional encouragement for people to get into finance, to build careers there, and so on and so forth. There are many people who are interested for all the, the usual reasons, but then how do you bring in those ethical leaders, people who act with integrity and who sort of further make the financial system safe and sound and stable and things of that nature. I think that that's a worthy goal. That's a, like I said, a timeless goal. And that's what I've always been impressed by. And secondly, your tenacity and your perseverance. So I've just seen how you've operated always with a positive mindset. And I think it's just incredible what you've done with the scholars of finance. Well, Arvind, along with your integrity, you exude generosity. Thank you for the very, very kind words. We're so grateful for your support of the growing support from City, And just want to thank you again for your time today. Hope to have you back on in the future and look forward to our next coffee chat in a couple of months. Thank you so much, Ross. I enjoyed being here. I enjoyed the conversation. Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.